Ephesians chapter 5, we are continuing our study of this second half of the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus and those in that area. Ephesians chapter 5. Let me remind you of our scripture memory passages. Memorizing these passages will help you hide God's word in your heart, as it were. You will benefit in your soul all the more. We as elders are memorizing these passages, and we found that just this week. We are soaking in these texts and meditating on them as we meditate, uh, sorry, memorize them. We encourage you to do the same, that we might be a scripture-saturated church. Well, for all of us, today is about marriage, and I realize that not all of us are married. But God commands all of us in Hebrews 13, saying, let marriage be held in honor among all. So if you're not married, this sermon does apply to you. Help us be a church. Help us be a church where marriage is held in honor among all of us. I want to take a moment to ask God for his help and to pray for the Moon family the loss of Jossie's mom this past Sunday, and also for the Lemkiel family. Uh, Eric Lemkiel's brother suddenly died on Friday. So let's pray for them. Father, we do right now, we come to worship in and through your word. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to open the eyes of our hearts to see, understand, and rightly apply this passage. We pray for our friends, the Moon family, we pray for our friends in the Lemkiel family that you would comfort them. Comfort them, we ask you, with the hope of resurrection in Christ. Comfort them with the reality of life eternal through Jesus. Comfort them even now, we pray. As they grieve, let them do so with this comfort and hope, we ask you. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Lindsay's going to read our passage beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit your own, to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, sh husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's been said that if you misinterpret a message, you will misapply it. 
If you misinterpret a message, you will misapply it. The story is told of a guy who got his mom an expensive parrot for Mother's Day. He paid $10,000 for this parrot. It could speak 40 languages and sing a few hymns. He sent the bird to his mom and didn't hear back for a few days. He was concerned, so he called his mother and asked her, how did you like the bird? To which she replied, it was great. Happy to hear this, the son asked, what was your favorite part? She answered, the thighs, they were delicious. Misinterpreting the message leads to misapplying the message. Few passages are as liable to being misinterpreted and so misapplied as this one. This passage is misinterpreted and misapplied by those who say it is a mere relic of the past, it should be in a museum, not in the church today, and it is misinterpreted and misapplied when used today for thinking that men are somehow superior and women somehow inferior. It's misinterpreted and misapplied by husbands who treat their wives harshly and by husbands who are passive and neglect to care for their wives lovingly. It's misinterpreted and misapplied by wives who resist a husband's godly care and initiative and by wives who unthinkingly might follow their husbands into foolish behavior or sin. Friends, we must, we must rightly interpret this passage that we might rightly apply this passage. And to rightly interpret it, let's keep in mind the main idea. I would summarize it like this. Husbands and wives are to reflect the loving union, the loving union between Christ and the church. Let's keep that as our center, our anchor point this morning. Husbands and wives are to reflect, rightly reflect, consistently reflect the loving union between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Now, three angles to get at that one truth. First, First, what is a wife to do in this passage? What a wife is to do in this passage. We left off last week in Ephesians 5, 21 with submit to one another as a result of being filled with the Spirit. Now God applies verse 21 to marriage in verse 22, saying, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice, not all women submitting to all men. Do not extrapolate that from this passage. It is wives submit to your own husbands. But I realize that even that may raise some questions. Because this is prone to being misinterpreted and so misapplied, let me, let me anticipate a few questions with you. First, is the wife submitting here to her husband just a cultural norm from long ago? Well, answer, no, I do not believe this is an issue addressed for one church 
in one place or time. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, Titus 2, and 1 Peter 3 all speak to wives submitting to their own husbands, and, and 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2 make similar statements but root them in creation. When a biblical principle is rooted in creation, that's a strong hint that it's transcultural, that it transcends culture or time or place. Now, how that principle gets lived out may vary from culture to culture or couple to couple. In some marriages, the husband might take care of the finances. In some marriages, the wife might take care of the finances. That's fine. But this passage points to a principle that transcends culture and time. Second question, does this imply that the wife is somehow inferior to the husband? Answer, absolutely not. There is no difference in dignity, value, and worth between men and women. Genesis chapter 1, both men and women made in the image of God and so absolutely equal. Friends, page 1 of your Bible, page 1 of your Bible prohibits all forms of abuse, all forms of misogyny, all forms of discrimination against women. Ephesians 5 describes a difference in role in marriage within our absolute equality. Make no mistake. Third question. Does this potentially open the door to abuse in marriage? Answer. Unfortunately, some husbands have distorted this teaching to excuse the abuse of a wife physically, sexually, spiritually, or emotionally, and that must not be. That must not be. The biblical word for abuse is probably the best translation would be oppression. And God is adamantly opposed to all oppression. So we will not tolerate, friends, any form of abuse. You will be finding on our church blog this week, we'll be posting resources on abuse. I recommend you read those and understand this important topic. And if you are hearing me this morning and you might be being abused in some way, please involve us as elders. If laws are being broken or you feel unsafe, please call the police and then call one of us. Now I acknowledge there are instances when a wife may be the primary abuser in ways. But let's be honest, in the vast majority of abuse situations, it's the husband. Husbands, if you are in any way being abusive toward your wife, please fear the Lord and ask for help. Please fear God and let us help. We will lead you to the cross of Christ 
and care for you in a process of repentance, but you must fear the Lord and reach out for help. But because this passage has been misinterpreted and misapplied, it does not mean we should delete it from our Bibles. It means we should rightly interpret it and rightly apply it. So catch the reasoning in verse 23. It says, verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So God says the husband is this head, analogous to Jesus being head over the church. So implied is a delegated degree of authority, a delegated degree of authority, or a delegated leadership role submitted to Jesus. So I would define the wife's call to submit as a heart and actions that embrace a husband's godly leadership. That's my best attempt. A heart and actions that seek to embrace a husband's godly leadership. And if you are objecting to that qualification of godly leadership, perhaps pointing to verse 24, where it says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything, and everything to their husbands. And you see that word, in that word, everything, a sort of blanket call to submission, regardless of situation, I think you want to take into account the whole counsel of God lest you misinterpret and misapply. A husband may not lead his wife into sin. That's just plain wrong. A husband may not force his wife to act against her will. That's coercion, not leadership. A husband may not convince his wife to violate her conscience before God. So I do think godly leadership is an appropriate qualification. But ladies, that does not mean, of course, demanding perfect leadership. There's only one perfect head, Jesus, we ain't him. <laughs> but you get to reflect the church's response to Christ as you embrace your husband's imperfect but generally godly leadership. You are to respect him that way as verse 33 commands. So ladies, please consider, do your heart and actions, do your heart and actions communicate a certain gladness for his attempts at godly leadership? Does he feel appreciated and respected in his attempts at patterns of godly leadership? Or does he perceive a rather different response from you? Maybe a lack of respect. I encourage you to ask him. And please, if you would, encourage him for all attempts at godly leadership. We want to encourage that. Ladies, encourage him for patterns of godly leadership, please. That is what a, a wife is to do in this passage. But 
Of course, I want to focus a bit on what a husband is to do in this passage. So secondly, guys, what we are to do, verse 25, husbands, love your wives. So here's, here's the mission of your headship. One word summary, love. Love her. In light of the love of Jesus Christ, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Brothers, the standard for your love does not get any higher. The bar cannot be raised to a greater height. Jesus held nothing back in his love for his bride, but sacrificed himself for her. Why? For her spiritual good. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Listen, our head died for us, died to do us so great a good, cleansing us, presenting us before him in splendor, holy, without blemish. Isn't that wonderful? Husbands, your headship does not accomplish what Jesus' headship does. Only Jesus accomplishes that. But there is a parallel, an analogy. You are to serve your wife for her good, her benefit, including her spiritual benefit. Often, I'm not sure if you relate to this, often I've heard a husband's leadership role described as well, when there's a decision-making process, I get to make the final decision. Have you heard that? Sometimes when this is described, that's how it's reduced down. Well, basically the buck stops with me. I make the final call. Brothers, I want to submit to you, we need a different paradigm. This is a call to a paradigm of love, not a power play. In that decision-making process, aren't we to ask how can I love my wife right now? Doesn't love her as Christ loved the church mean prioritizing her, even prioritizing her preferences whenever and wherever you can? Let me shoot straight with you guys. Being a husband is a call to die. To die to yourself and demonstrate Jesus' great love. In your love, your wife is to encounter a reflection of Christ's love. She is to experience someone sacrificing to serve her. Is that her experience? Please ask her. And if she says, no, that's not my experience, or not very often, dear, 
find out why and make any necessary adjustments. Now, I think we could almost stop there, having been compelled by the highest standard of love. But God then kind of breaks it down for us a little bit further. He, he provides added motivation. Look at verse 28. In the same way. So, yes, there's analogy. Yes, serve her spiritual good. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as, <laughs> as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I love this. Break it down real simple for me, God. Okay, Tab, I will. If you love your wife, you are loving yourself. He's going to go on and say, we are one flesh together. Husbands and wives joined together in a covenant, one flesh before God. So love her as your own body. What's good for her is going to be good for you. What's not good for her is not going to be good for you, Tab. Similarly, verse 29, for no one, no one ever hated his own flesh, his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. God is saying, guys, you, you do a good job of looking after your physical body. You nourish your physical body. Mine, I rarely miss a meal. We rather naturally nourish and cherish our physical bodies. God is saying, nourish and cherish her just like that. He's saying, you already know what this is like. Nourish, care for her soul. Cherish, demonstrate your love because you are joined together in him, members of his body joined as one flesh before God. Now, we're going to have a men's meeting on November 20th, two weeks from yesterday, to unpack those two terms and just make application together as well as have a great time as men. So, guys, single or married, please join us on the 20th. Information's in your bulletin. But briefly here, let's, let's tease this out. Let's use a sports analogy. I don't use a lot of sports analogies. But let's say you are still a Chargers fan. Now the LA Chargers, right? Boo. And let's say the Chargers are on offense. The Chargers running back when the ball is hiked. The Chargers running back goes and tackles his teammate, the Chargers wide receiver. During the play, the Chargers running back runs over, tackles, the Chargers wide receiver. What would you say to that if you're a Chargers fan? You say, what are you doing? You guys are on the same team. You're joined together. You wear the same jersey. That's what we're to realize in marriage. When, when you're butting heads in conflict, guys, stop, stop and say, honey, what are we doing? We're on the same team. We're wearing the same jersey. We're joined together. And you will be loving her, and so, as it were, loving yourself. First, first Peter 3, verse 7, drives this home as well. In that verse, God says to husbands to honor their wives. 
And what I find interesting is in the previous chapter, Peter commands, honor the emperor. <laughs> honor the king of the Roman Empire. That gives you a feeling for what he means by honor your wife. Pretty high standard. And then he tells us why. Since, since she is heir with you of the grace of life, entirely equal with you, on the same team with you, wearing the same jersey with you, a fellow heir with you, so honor her like that. That's what's in view in Ephesians 5. It's not about power. It's about a responsibility. A responsibility to love like Christ. That's what a wife does in this passage. That's what a husband does in this passage. And then, what, what does a marriage do in this passage? What does a marriage do in this passage? See, God next draws on the very first marriage. Verse 31. Therefore, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and and hold fast to, cleave to, covenant with his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. That's inspired commentary from Genesis chapter 2 on the very first marriage between Adam and Eve. And that's what happens in every marriage since. One man and one woman becoming one flesh before the living God. And then the payoff for us, verse 32, this mystery this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, by mystery there, he doesn't mean an Agatha Christie mystery or Sherlock Holmes. He means, he means something previously hidden has now been revealed. And what's been revealed with the coming of Christ is this, that marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. Friends, that's not just some helpful illustration. That's the purpose of marriage. Husbands reflecting Jesus' love for his bride. Wives reflecting the church's love and respect for Jesus. It's glorious. It should excite you and give you vision. Maybe think of it this way. It's been said that if you're traveling on the 101 north of L.A., you will sense your arrival in the town of Gilroy. You will smell it. You see, Gilroy is the home of the annual garlic festival. Gilroy is where garlic ice cream was invented. Gilroy considers itself the garlic capital of the world. You know when you've arrived in Gilroy because the smell of garlic is wafting through the air. Listen, you know when you're living out this purpose in your marriage when the grace of God and the love of Jesus are wafting through your relationship day by day. It's glorious. Jesus' love and sacrifice for his bride, the church, and the church's love and respect for Jesus wafting through your relationship day by day. That's the big picture here. And seeing that, seeing that can have a powerful effect. Because what happens in marriage is, over time, 
the little things add up, don't they? The little things start to bother you. Oh, at first they didn't. You were wonderfully smitten. But over time, her little habits or his little habits, they, they start to wear on you. Oh, she, she left the cap off the toothpaste again. Oh, he left his socks on the floor again. In my marriage, it's tab. Don't throw things out without asking if I'm saving it. <laughs> I like to purge. She likes to save. Sorry, dear. But what if those little things that tend to bother you were seen as opportunities to display this purpose? What if those little things were seen in light of this bigger picture? Wouldn't that infuse meaning and purpose into every act of forbearance and patience and love? I heard a pastor recently say, the key in marriage is the thousand daily steps of faithfulness. I thought that is a good way to put it. The key in marriage is the thousand daily steps of faithfulness. Friends, if you see this big picture, you'll be motivated for those thousand daily steps. Each of those thousand daily steps will have meaning and purpose. You'll want to do them because you're reflecting Jesus and his bride and then the aroma of God's grace and the aroma of Christ's love will be wafting through your relationship every day. You see, friends, it's possible to misinterpret and misapply this passage, but it's also possible to, to rightly interpret. And it's very important to rightly apply it. Husbands and wives reflecting the loving union between Christ and the church. But I recognize it's not always easy. Maybe you've hit difficulties. Maybe you've hit hardships. Maybe you're exhausted caring for small children. And truth be told, you don't think of your spouse like you once did. You don't look at your spouse like you once did. Listen, when one or both of you doesn't, doesn't want to love like you ought, that doesn't mean you need a different spouse. It doesn't mean you made a mistake. It means it's time to remember what your marriage is really about. You know, youth here, or teens, or single adults. I entitled this message, God's Spirit-Empowered Household, because this is called God's Household Code in Ephesians. And you are part of this household right here. This is God addressing marriage in the context of a letter about the church. And you are teenagers, children, single adults. You are a vital part of this church. Here's, here's how you can help the married couples around you. Remind them of the context. Remind them that all of this is flowing out of the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God wants to help them and remind those married couples of what their marriage is really all about. Say to them, look, 
I know you're having problems, but your marriage is bigger than the two of you. Look outside of yourselves and see the big picture. Because for all of us who know Christ, married and single, we are that bride pictured in Ephesians 5. If you're here this morning and you don't yet know him, I want to urge you to turn to Christ. But if you're thinking, I know Jesus, but I'm not married, so I'm not in this passage, you're wrong. If you know Christ, you are part of the people he gave himself up for in verse 25. That's you there. You're a part of that bride he presents to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, holy, without blemish. So singles, youth, married couples, listen, behold the love of Christ this morning. And when you don't feel like loving your spouse or your friend or whomever, look to where he has displayed his love. Keep focusing on the one who gave himself up for you. Behold his great love for you until by the power of the Spirit fresh love is kindled in your heart. Friends, the purpose of marriage is to reflect the gospel, this good news. And that gospel is the hope for every marriage and the hope for every person here. Our hope is not in ourselves for these things. Our hope is in the one who hung from a Roman cross, bearing God's judgment for our sins. Our hope is found where the power of sin was broken in your life and the penalty of your sin paid. Our hope is found in the one who rose triumphant over sin and death and the grave and intercedes for you right now. Our hope is in him who says, come to my throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Misinterpreting does lead to misapplying, so let us rightly interpret and rightly apply. Look outside yourself and see Jesus this morning. Married couples, look outside yourself and see the big picture. See that you are called to reflect the loving union between Christ and his bride the church. Now, we want to take the Lord's Supper this morning. And Joshua and I were meeting with Eric Lemkule this week, and he made a great suggestion that I thought would be apropos and maybe helpful right now. Just to do this a little differently and to help us give thanks to God for the sacrifice of his son, to help us give thanks together. Now, for those who haven't trusted the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we ask you this morning to take Christ, to turn from going your own way and trust in Jesus Christ, to rely only on his life, death, and resurrection, to take away your sins and bring you to God, and he will, friend, he will. Turn to him. I urge you, believe him. But for the rest, I want to ask you in a moment when you get your bread and cup to Go back to your seat and just hang on to him for a moment. Take the bread and the cup. 
from the server. Go back to your seat and just don't take it quite yet. When we all get the bread and the cup, we'll take it together and just give thanks to God together, an expression of faith. So would these servers please come prepared to serve us the elements? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for this glorious picture of so great a love that Jesus, our Savior, loved his people and gave himself up for his people to sanctify, to cleanse, to purify, to position us before you holy and without blemish. Help us now to give thanks, believing this good news as we take the bread and the cup together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.